0: so welcome to episode two season two of the secret podcast this week's podcast is a very different podcast to the previous episode we're going to be talking a lot about the in-depth process of manufacturing and designing crash protection parts for motorcycles i think it's something that is by me at least has always been quite easily overlooked as a relatively simple thing where the design and manufacturer of these parts isn't particularly complicated. And when poor decisions are made that they're probably quite easily solvable. On the flip side, I have been involved in small amounts of design and production over the years, and it is never a simple process. And the, the methods that you have to, to arrive at a quality end product can be pretty tricky. Our guest this week is a chap called Jeremy LeBreton. He is the president or CEO or founder of uh, an American brand called Alt Rider. They produce protection parts for adventure bikes of a really high quality. They're made in America predominantly designed in America, and Jeremy himself is a fascinating character with a huge amount to say, a lot of life about him, and a huge level of enthusiasm. You might notice from last week's podcast as well that this week's one is a little bit shorter. Jeremy had a meeting to go to, so the questions and the whole podcast itself is a little bit more succinct, and it's definitely at 100,000 miles an hour compared to normal but I'd like to know what you think about that. Did you enjoy, do you enjoy the fact that it's a 40-minute podcast instead of a two-hour podcast? Does it make it better or are you just happy to let those conversations run? As that's probably all I've got to say for this intro. Uh, so without further ado, I leave you in the enthusiastic embrace of Mr. Jeremy Breton. So Jeremy, welcome to the podcast where I interview people about subjects in slightly more detail than I would normally expect someone to ask about to kind of satisfy my inner circle, inner motorcycle nerd. So welcome all the way from Seattle. Uh, So in today's podcast, I want to talk to you about the process of designing and developing and building uh, motorcycle protection parts. Really, that's what you do. You're the CEO of Alt Rider. Um, and so, and kind of go through a lot of the technical challenges that go along with that from keeping your bike being obliterated every time one of us decides we need to smash it into some rocks. So to start with, I want to go through a nice, simple question to keep things, uh, light when it comes to designing adventure bike products, uh, what the biggest challenges you have, especially when you're starting with a new model, like a new KTM comes out, how does that process go?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, that's funny. Yeah, that's not an easy question. And I think the answer is not what you would expect. Because in my mind, as I just listened to you do that intro, I was immediately going to my challenges, which is not how to make the best part for your protection of your bike. It is how to manufacture the best part for your bike. And really, our challenges are in and around the manufacturing side. Um, I'll get a little bit into that. We'll get too over the top. I don't think that's so much what these guys want to hear about. But now, going back to your specific question, which is, hey, new bike gets launched, how do you get the designs done? And for sure, it's an arms race to getting access to the bike. And it's been interesting over the years. That's ranged everything from, uh, and what's funny again, though, is to preface the information, America, even though we're the you know, arguably the number one or two consumer market second to China, we're actually not a motorcycle market. So perfect example, the Teneri didn't come to our country for a year and a half after it already had been out. And same with the big sister of the Teneri, the twelve hundred, and quite frankly, the six sixty never even came to the US i.e., the largest purchasing market. So it gives you some perspective. We're a little bit behind everybody. Uh, so we've done everything from having our Australian distributor buy a brand new box, and there was something cool about going to SeaTac, which is Seattle's uh, airport, and with a pickup truck and picking up a uh, Yamaha Tenere in a Yamaha box in a pickup truck. Uh, it's a funny, great story. Uh, and it was worth it for us on a car day just to do the design work. Um, those were the long ago days. I remember actually using the water suppression pipes at the uh, building to then ratchet strap up the bike because of course it comes in a pallet and it's not on wheels and you can't get it out of your truck because it's in a pallet with no fucking wheels. <laughs> yeah. So we literally uh, use the uh, red straps on the water suppression line. But nowadays it's quite a bit easier uh, and also the technology, right? So that's a big one. Uh, it's interesting now, 12 years later, I'm no longer young, and uh, but the technology has gotten amazing. So it used to always be a real rat racing a challenge, you begged the OEMs, and sometimes you'd have some relationships that would allow you to get some CAD data from the OEMs. But other than that, it was really hard to get concrete CAD data. And now with the new technology, it's pretty amazing. I don't really want to go into too much depth of the stuff that we're using. We're still very much on the cutting edge because we're in the Boeing corridor. Mm -hmm. And so while we don't own a lot of this several hundred thousand dollar equipment, we have access to it. Uh, that's what's great about working in this industry instead of like uh, health care or life insurance is executives and really powerful people are really interested in what you're doing and will bend the rules and help you a lot if, uh, if they're interested in motorcycles. So that gets us the CAD data. But then what I was really getting to is the manufacturing challenge. Before that is what we call our PDP, which is a product development protocol. It's 120 steps on how a product goes from concept to birth and into production. I won't get into wow. depth about that. Uh, but that allows everything to be scalable as well. So you can have several engineers understanding what's going on. So as the company grows and scales, we're not turn into a shit show and we actually know what we're doing and we can scale accordingly. Um, but that last piece of the ingredient, which is manufacturing. It's easy to get a couple of parts made. It's not easy to get consistent volume, consistent quality, and all done with a margin so that you can run a business. And I think a lot of people are just starting to see this or understand this from the consumer side as we're starting to see more brands show up in the ADV world before there was one big German brand, and that co- and then now there's a lot of brands. And it's been interesting if you've watched the big German brand, it's gone through a real interesting life cycle. Um, and these other smaller brands, some Asian and then some Eastern European brands, who've come out and really have taken a lot of market share. But what people are starting to experience is, hey, did that quality stay consistent? Was the quality there? Can I fit this thing on my bike? Whoa, that hardware in the video looked really awesome. What's this shit? i'm gonna put this on my bike and those are the real challenges to running a business long term and getting something off the ground and so um it is really hard to uh execute right you always hear the idea is the easy part the hard part is is manufacturing and and working with those uh manufacturers and getting so you have consistent build quality and that we're always getting the consistent hardware and that the install is easy 12 years ago the industry standard was using a, 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 a cheater bar, like having to bend your crash bars, fight and, and, and get them on, or an angle grinder and removing materials to get your skid plate on because the bolt holes don't line up. I really have a lot of pride that I think we really pushed the industry into making that an expectation, not that the consumer is a part of the manufacturing process. It's like, I paid for the damn thing. Why doesn't it go on? I think we're seeing a little bit of that start to slip backwards, and so we... That's where I'm saying that the challenge really is in and around manufacturing and um, yeah, to consistently make these parts so they actually not only do their job but you can install them
0: so what, what when when it comes to that problem when you have some companies that are really small and they're quite clearly like either a, a really small factory or a handmade product versus something that fits perfectly every time, what is the difference in your your process that allows for a product to be perfectly fitting or nearly perfectly fitting every time?
1: That's a great question. Well, and I'd be lying to you if I told you I knew, I'll tell you some of the things I think that do play into it because there's a lot of variables there. And I think it really starts right at the very beginning, which is the original design. So, right. I just told you it turns into an arms race to get the bike. Mm -hmm. After that, it's a, it's an arms race to who can get the parts out to market and start taking money and Alt-Rider painfully be honest has never been the first to market. One, accessibility to the bikes, but two, we don't rush our designs. And it's so easy, especially me being the the boss and the owner, to to cheat a corner. We got it close enough because if we got it close enough but didn't get it there, that means we got to do another prototype. And it's not a prototype like, hey, you and me go in the shop, and I'm sure you fabbed up a lot of stuff over your years. That we could do this evening, and tomorrow we're done. Prototype number two, let's check it out. Prototype has to be done in the production factory, otherwise there's no value to that prototype because it's not going to be reflective of the production envir- of the production product. So when we if we screw it up and we're like not or not screw it up but say hey we can make it better, we've just put on four to six weeks to wait for prototype number two to that approved prototype, now you've got four to six weeks for production. And that's saying that you don't have tooling. If you got tooling in there, you could have added another four to six weeks. So holy shit, man, we have just added, right, month and a half segments in between there. Now all of a sudden you can start to see a six month lead time till you're to market. Meanwhile, you're watching all these uh, Instagram videos of guys installing parts, man, not showing the whole process, but he's taking all your sales. So um, starting at the beginning with your design is key. And that's really the big one. And then getting into the factory and making sure that the factory is consistent, right? You always hear about the Asian horror stories about how you uh, it starts off this way and then it changes mid-production. Over the years, I've gotten to hear from Bigger, bigger companies, OEMs, and stuff. How you got to do metallurgy tests on a pretty consistent basis because they'll change the metal alloy to chase, to chase cost savings, and you wouldn't see it or know the difference. But it will. That that uh, triple tree or that fork might snap right in an in an aggressive environment because it's the wrong alloy. So, uh, but really, that design, getting that thing right, so that the parts are actually going to have a chance to fit when they're manufactured, and then having a good relationship at the manufacturing side.
0: So. One of the things that you touched on there that I find really fascinating when it comes to product development is that subject of prototyping. I always find it really interesting how someone can have an idea and then two years later, six months later, there's a finished product that is incredibly well designed and polished and developed in front of you now my small experience with prototyping you touched on it a little bit there is mostly around designing unique bikes so when it comes to dirt bikes and adventure bikes you don't need to do it that much but when you build rally bikes you do you 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 make stuff out of stuff because you have to or you get other people to make prototype style parts and and it kind of brings me on to a little story of uh, a sump guard that my dad had designed for one of his rally bikes and it was a by a guy who was a really good welder and engineer, and he knew a lot, but it was a bit too square. The front of it was quite square-edged, and it dug out a massive rock when it hit when he landed off a jump, and it caused an enormous crash. And until that had happened, none of us looked at that design and were like, "That's a problem." But the weld was big, square-edged, big rock, big crash, and so my I kind of my question with prototyping is obviously there's so much you can do when you're designing in CAD and I'm sure you have really good ideas of the stress that you can put metals under and the bend angles and the materials you're using. But is there a part of that process as well where you have to physically test the product in the wild and how do you go about doing that? Because is that something you do by just riding and crashing a lot (laughs) or is it something that you do in a more scientific way?
1: Uh, Well, there's about six times I had to bite my tongue from not interrupting you. Uh, and we'll have to, do, as I was said before we got started, we need to talk more often. Um, so, uh, a couple of things you said there: skin plate uh, design looks like shovel, and it's funny that you fucking say that because that's so often the case of the current designs that we're looking at. And I can't believe it because of course we do a market research, right? We look to see what's out there, and there's. Um, Two brands that stand out that we call them shovels, and there's a reason why it looks like that, and why your pops skid plate 13 years ago was fabbed up that way, um, is because it's easy. I mean, it's the path of least resistance, right? Yeah. Hold it up and make a make a fucking box. Uh, the problem is, is you're killing all of your ground clearance, both cornering clearance, and then in your dad's situation, is g and out or landing, he's got this big huge uh, target, this anchor that's going to hook up and hit something, and worst case scenario, cause a huge crash. Uh, so that stands out pro- profoundly. And then you said, hey, man, when you're in the design phase, yeah, it's really easy to tweak everything in CAD, and it's a whole nother thing to execute. And then, hey, how do you go about testing and actually making sure you did the right thing? We for sure do rely on a lot of uh, FEA analysis, finite analysis, but that's only on static load, and it gets really expensive, and you lose the level of value of the information that you're getting back from the computational analysis when you start to try to factor in load cycling. So real quick and easy, you got a, uh, the Tenere 700 luggage rack. We're making a really sleek, sexy luggage rack. But we know guys are gonna way overload them, way past that five pound limit that Yamaha states from the factory. So we want these things to function, right? The problem is though, static load, FE analysis says we can go well in excess of 700 to 800 pounds based upon the design iterations we're going through. You're like, Jeremy, that's way, you're fine, right? We're we're way overbuilt, we're golden, and we didn't make this thing look clunky and ugly. But that's not the answer, it's that um, cycling analysis of the guy overloading it with 45 pounds, and now aggressively riding off-road for the next four to five weeks, and it's the cycling, that hammering effect of that 45 pounds on those brackets, and then where does that first fracture occur from the load cycling, because metal has a life cycle of how many times it can actually flex, and everything in there is flexing, just really small. It's flex, and that's that cycling. And there's computational analysis, expensive software that will figure that out. But it's the more you get into a really good design and you're trying to figure out when it's going to fail, i.e. is it going to be five weeks in that hard off road scenario? That value computationally starts to fall off. So now we're into real world uh, investigations. Did that make sense?
0: Yeah, massively. Yeah,
1: OK. <laughs> there's a lot of value to starting there and it saves a lot of fucking time and we still spend a lot of time at the uh, design phase and running computational investigations then it's hey what's the real life, life situation and it's funny because when I interview engineers and or talk to factories that's a number one touch point and they, everyone loves to use the buzzword finite analysis and I'm going you tell me the parameters because the the computer will only tell you what you told it to tell you it's mm-hmm. the whole thing of it and there's so now I say to you, as the engineer who loves buzzwords or the manufacturer, tell me the, tell me the parameters of the crash that we're going to go test that crash bar. So speed, impact, where are we going to hit? OK, you got one figured out. Now let's go do the 86,000 86, other different environments and parameters of the crash that we're trying to test your crash bar design. So the answer is, if anybody tells you they really do all this great testing, or a lot of people say, we have uh, real-world rider testers, our test team, our dog pound. These guys are out testing. It's like even even more bullshit because now you've got people who don't even work at the company who aren't designers out there. They're ride testers, and then they're the ones finding out what you need to do to change your design. So and even funnier, I think, is now a lot of the companies are pushing their bikes
0: over in the parking lot and dragging them around with forklifts. Have you seen that? I've seen that. It was one of my questions, in fact. <laughs> it's wildly popular. Yeah, and it's so- a great video. It makes a great video for sure.
1: The problem is, though, how is that repl- replicative of a real-world crash environment? So it's got a ton of big clickbait, social media hype in and around it. But does that look like how you actually crash your bike? So taking a bike at something like even as minimal as like 18 miles an hour and having you as the rider actually on it so now if we put you as felt uh i don't know in your stones 150 stones but uh let's say 200 pounds in the u.s yeah now that just by putting the rider on there you've you've increased the the um impact force massively by putting a real rider on there and also the way that the bike's actually gonna crash. It's totally makes pushing bikes over parking lots laughable, but actually it's clickbait, the, the, the audience loves it. And that's just, you know, hey, making sure that the audience is educated about uh, how is your crash bars engineered and how are your crash bars actually functioning for you as a rider. Um, is pretty important. And then it really, what it comes down to though Lou, is, yeah. Hey, can, can you get thousands of miles on these bikes? And then also though, there's just the history of seeing and having done this over the years mm-hmm. that, you know, what works and what doesn't work as far as in terms of size of gauge of your flanges that are bolted into the bike. Ours are almost always three sixteenths. And the number of contact or touch points that you have on the frame of the motorcycle, right? There's some some crossover rules of thumb that just work and the longer you've been in the game, you already start to know where you're going to see those failures.
0: Mm. Okay, so I think that you, you touched on it a little bit there, but one of the things that I find also really interesting about this whole subject is the materials uh, that are used by different companies, the properties that come with that, and, and one of the things that I think you as a company push that is, is that you use stainless steel bars and they're typically really thick, which in theory makes them really strong. So what is, the, what is the primary reason for the choices that you make? And is stainless steel the best material for the job if money wasn't a consideration?
1: <laughs> Great question, Lou. I'm trying to give you a really concise answer because we're going to run out of time. But um, so... To clarify, we, you are right, we always do stainless steel, and they're not super thick. They're 083 wall thickness. So to give you a perspective, that's the thickness of the wall, okay? okay. 0.83 wall thickness. <clears throat> and the reason why they don't need to be super thick is because you get a tremendous amount of strength from the circle. So that old story, you know, you take a raw egg and you actually cannot crush it in your hand. Mm-hmm. Because all the load is distributed, right? The power of a tube is a massive. Now, the thing that's really important is, though, if you crush that tube to make a bolting flange, you now no longer have all that strength of the tube. You have the strength of a flat bar. Mm -hmm. Now, we know you can take flat bar, really thick flat bar, and if you make it as long as, say, a crash bar, you could bend that. There's no way in the hell you as a human could take one inch, very thin walled, stainless steel tube and actually bend it, even if it was four feet long. You're not going to be able to physically bend it. So tremendous amount of strength in the circle. If you start to crush that uh, flange because it's cheap and easy for welding the flange, because now it's it's smushed and you only have to do one weld, or for joining the tubes together. You see that oftentimes at the front of the bike where the, cr- the crush bars come together. you They smash them drill them and through bolt them again we've just lost all the strength of the tube right it's that whole statement the weakest link so wherever you did that that's where the bar is going to fold and crumple um so and then secondly it's not i wouldn't say that that's dramatically more expensive in the crash bar to do them in stainless i think it's hopefully it's undisputed that you would prefer if you had the option to have stainless instead of mild steel and you 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 would laugh or not fucking understand why you got aluminum crash bars i've not understood where what's the application there because that wouldn't really i don't we know that the aluminum would fold under a crash environment but mild steel is oftentimes what you see it's a much it's a cheaper option but it's not that much cheaper lou yes it's on average you'd say 25 percent more in material costs but if you look at the actual cost makeup of making that crash bar The materials is a very small percentage of your cost. Your cost is really the setup of the the mandrel tube bender, the the setup and the tooling of the weld fixture, and then the labor, especially because we're one of the only guys who actually does TIG welding, that's where all my cost is. So if my material cost is a small element, bumping it by 25% is small in the big picture of the actual purchase price of the crash bars. Mm -hmm. So while stainless is a more expensive material, it's not dramatically more and it's not like this was with price was up without a question in the design so that's the clarification i wanted to do there and then but do i think that's the right thing to do well absolutely it said crash bar didn't it so i am going to crash on this crash bar and if i make it out of mild steel i don't ride my motorcycle in my house it's going to be outside and therefore you're going to have rust running down that crash bar. And even if you're such a good rider because you're a double-A rider and you never crash, well, I guarantee you in two years, you're still going to have rust at all those mounting points because where those screw bolts went through, there's uh, a breach in the powder coat or paint, and you're going to have rust, and it's going to be running down the frame, and it's going to look horrible. So it'd be different if we're riding little Guangzhou scooters, but most of the stuff we're making it for is expensive, badass-looking BMWs or Yamahas, and so I don't want rusty parts hanging off my motorcycle. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So uh, along those same lines, is it possible to make something out of a a more exotic material, say titanium or something else? Or is stainless steel still like that peak balance of material usage? Um. For those of you listening, Jeremy's gone to get something from a cupboard.
1: I told you we just moved into our new building, but I actually found it. So uh, this is composite rod. And so uh, good question, my friend, because uh, crash bars are our thing. I think we've established our reputation on our crash bars uh, as far as functionality, because unlike in the EU where you guys aren't allowed to legally ride uh, until you get to uh, Africa or Eastern (laughs) Europe, Unless you, like, know your dad and you guys are up on the island and you guys could sneak away with it. Or, like, in in, uh, um, Portugal, I think they could do still some of it in Italy. We ride. We're we're the luckiest bastards ever, right? We have this economy, and we, especially on the West Coast, uh, there's times when we ride just our dirt bikes. And I swear we are riding where humans haven't been. Um, And we get to do that on a weekend basis, you know, like this weekend. Mm -hmm. So we do throttle these bikes pretty savagely. Um, without question. And so I think that's what helped us set our reputation uh, as far as our crash bars functionality. We really took them seriously the way that we designed them, the way that we mounted them. And we built our reputation on that for the last uh, 12 years. But as we, they're expensive. And as we've tried to look at different ways to do it, um, composites being that we're in the, as I said, the Boeing corridor, there's a ton of technology that we have access to. And we have really looked at it, but, uh, Yes, if price wasn't an issue, there's definitely probably better ways to do it. I actually don't know that I've taken anything to fruition. We've start, so we've definitely looked at the composites, and the real issues with composites is the joints and how to maintain the integrity in and around the joints. Um, it's interesting. One of the sub suppliers of Polaris, Polaris has gone around and bought a bunch of companies, as you probably know, mm-hmm. like TimberSled and. Trail Tech who do the the little computers. It's an interesting sub industry, but composites was a big thing, and they're working to try to get the sub the frames of those side by sides all done in composites, and their volumes and their sizes and their autoclaves and their and I got to see the whole um, automated system. They can actually get the cost cheaper than the welded mild steel sub uh, frames of the. Wow.
0: Okay. Of the
1: side by sides. Which would seem super premium, but then it's a market perception issue and that hasn't gone to production because the, the audience would think that that's weaker than the actual steel frame. I want steel frame and my six pack in the back, you know, or whatever the big cooler beers in the back of their side by side.
0: Well, I'm, so, I'm sure but- we have the same, the same issue in in adventure motorcycling with some of the design aspects as well. And that kind of leads me on into my next question about materials is one of the things with dirt bikes. And I know we talked about this briefly before is that in the last kind of 10 years off-road dirt bike style, products have moved massively away from using aluminium or steel as protection parts. So like I can't remember the last time it was probably 2008 that I had an aluminium sump guard on an Enduro bike because it comes with a lot of drawbacks. It changes the flex of a cradle frame. It's heavy. Everything now is made of injection molded plastics. They're strong, they're light, they last forever. So what is the primary reason that we haven't seen those materials come into Adventure motorcycle protection parts.
1: That is a uh, great question, Lou. Uh, I think the one big different differentiation we we do have is weight. And so, right, the heaviest of the dirt bikes you're running is 250. Mm-hmm. The lightest of the adventure bikes were realistically ever going to see is 450 470 pounds and that's not just due to technology that's just due to lawsuits and regulatory agencies because these are now regulated because they're on road vehicles versus the off-road dirt bikes so we've more than doubled that weight load of the object that we're trying to protect Mm -hmm. that's not to say that i don't think there's going to be a transition and we are definitely spending quite a bit of time in in that world um As far as investigating the plastics, and we we will and uh, are going to have some of that coming out soon. Uh, But it is a good question, and I I think that first differentiator is just that massive difference in the weight of the bikes that we're trying to protect in the dirt bikes versus the adventure bikes. Mm -hmm. But I would agree with your first statement, though, in terms of on the proper enduro bikes, the last time running an aluminum skid was quite some time ago, even though that was everything everybody had yeah. and that would have been 15 years or 13 and you still see it, but yeah, it's uh, that was all everybody had and now it's very much changing.
0: Mm. So along those same, the same lines, uh, we see a lot of product, Uh, especially in sump guards that that is laser cut or router cut. I I don't know the exactness of of the technology used, but a few years ago when the Multistrider Enduro came out, it really struck me that that bike came with what looked visually like a beautiful sump guard. It was like a pressed steel. It was really nicely shaped. It had sleek edges. It was the complete opposite of a Turrotec style laser cut, one and a half i don't know three mil aluminium sump guard it just looked completely different one looked like a oem product and one looks like it was made by a man in a shed with a laser cutter what do you what is the the difference in those two products and why would you choose one over the other so
1: that's a tough question to ask without us looking at the specific actual plate that you're talking about it just took a peek but i think i could speak to i think what you're talking about yes it has always been interesting that there must be no designer who works at tour it's always <laughs> das made german make line as short as possible okay this is what you ended up with you didn't say anything about how it looked just get it made Ah, And it never really seems to ever have anybody's hands on it in the design department. Um, I know that company's gone through quite a bit of transition and change, and I think we're seeing a whole different business model from it anyways. Um, So that's your guy in the shed making shovels or boxes for a skid plate. Uh, And what I think you're talking about, what you do tend to see from both uh, Italy, being Ducati and Honda, if honda actually was in the dirt bike game but you look at their rally bike and you're seeing really nicely formed parts now there's limitations meaning so no longer is this uh stamped i should say stamped or hydro mm-hmm. so no longer is this just a laser cutout thing and then you put it in the press brake and you fold up the box and you weld the four seams you now are getting this all done in one chunk and then and then out it comes right so now it's all formed it's got a very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, but a very flowing surface to it, which is only done via tooling. It's a couple of limitations that though, is now you have a real limitation of how much, how thick that material can be to get it to flow and move all that way. So oftentimes I know on those multi stratus well, they looked great. They actually had very little integrity as far as the actual skid plate, as far as the ability to take a big hit. Um, and then on top of that, though, you have massive costing limitations because that tool that was just made to actually make that stamping is now well into the tens and tens and tens of thousands. And so you've got to be able to amortize it across every one of those bikes that are sold globally, not as a brand selling and trying to capture some percentage of that market.
0: OK, that, well, that kind of, I suppose, answers that question is that someone would realistically then need to sell 50,000 units of a single skid plate to, to cover that cost or something along those lines.
1: It certainly does continue to blow our minds as why the hell the OEMs have not figured this out. Sometimes you really look at these brand new bikes, brilliant engineering, and this is across all the brands, KTM, Honda, Yamaha, BMW, who the hell's making the skid plate that comes on this bike? So, you know, I won't argue too much about it. We won't have a job when they figure it out, but uh, it certainly does make you wonder who got that job.
0: So, Along, uh, I think one of the things that I find really interesting about Alt-Rider as a company as well is that you're very much under the banner of American-made product. Now, America as a country seems to be from the outside super proud of products that are made in the USA. For a company like you, how much difference does it make that you design and produce your parts in the US in your local area? And how much does it hamper you?
1: It's uh, a great question, though, and I don't think we've ever done a great job on the marketing. We probably aren't really the uh, number one marketing company by far. We tend to throw all of our resources and money into the R&D side of things, which never some of that stuff never makes it to the light of day, and so people don't get to see that aspect or that side of it. But I guess my point is I don't know how many people do know that this stuff is made in the U.S., so I'm not sure we've ever really capitalized on it as much as we should have. And then as far as limitations, I don't say it's... There are limitations, I shouldn't say there's not. And I just told you in the beginning, it's hard to find consistently good shops that you can then maintain the margins, right? It's expensive to manufacture in the U.S. We don't exclusively manufacture in the U.S. We've certainly looked at Mexico. We certainly have had stuff, uh, castings done in Canada and have had subcomponents come from Asia for sure. It'd be stupid not to. Um, I think we are really lucky to be, again, to say it, but this Boeing corridor has left a legacy of super talented uh, engineers uh machinists and sheet metal operators that has been a treasure trove for us to tap into even if the guy doesn't have a a dirt bike background but the best part is oftentimes these guys do have a bit of a dirt bike background because this is kind of the mecca uh for off-road riding so i i think yes there are drawbacks to manufacturing in the u.s but us specifically in this corridor uh man the talent and knowledge is is tremendous I, a great example pre is one of the largest. Um, uh, exercise equipment manufacturers. whole long thing, a story of acquisitions. They're actually uh, now owned by a Chinese uh, hidden holding company, but they have just sold to Peloton. And Peloton has bought them to get their, their manufacturing talents up. Now, Precor had a ton of manufacturing capacity in the Pacific Northwest, but it's expensive here. And so they opened up North Carolina, huge shop, huge, we're talking 700,000 square foot factories. Massive! And there's weldments and uh, assemblies they cannot get done to quality to the QA process and they have to come back up to this area to get done. And that's just on the on the fabrication, the assembly, uh, welding up these weldments. They can't get the, the talent on the East Coast in some of these uh, other lesser talented areas than they can here. So that's on manufacturing, which is even two tiers below the complications and challenges when you start back at the design. So I think we're pretty lucky to have some access to some of the talent that surrounds us.
0: That's a, well, that's a very interesting and insightful uh, approach really, because especially when you put it like that, because a lot of other companies are quite small brands where it's one or two people who are coming up with this stuff and working on it. It's kind of a, a full circle approach where in some ways, yeah, that's very interesting. So one of the other things I think that it also really interests me about Alt-Rider and yourself especially is is the event that you run every year called The Taste of Dakar, which is from the outside, at least, not really a promotional event it's very much about you and a bunch of your customers just going riding so can you tell us a little bit more about that and what the the idea behind it is
1: uh yeah i'll try to keep it brief um as i was going to say more on the manufacturing side but just just to move on uh taste car came about 12 years ago um before alt-rider I worked at tour tech and uh, ran that USA operations for many years uh, and so I've been in the industry for a long time and you always hear the same three excuses hey I don't really uh, know where to ride off-road I don't really know how to ride off-road and I really don't have any buddies who want to do this same type of off-road riding. and you would hear this when you ask and find out why is nobody riding motorcycles in America be, and, and it's funny when I'm on the tours, uh, you know, like the IMS shows and the presentations, I explain to people, we do not ride motorcycles and they're bullshit. Uh, I'm like, that's why the OEMs don't bring any motorcycles here because you guys don't ride them and don't buy them. You're all sitting on your couches. And so you'd hear those same three excuses time and time and time again. So the initial idea was really just to address those ideas, which was, hey, let's, do some training and education. So, we used to do a bunch of training with uh, Jimmy Lewis. Been lucky enough to have your pop Simon uh, come over, do some training, set up and show them where they can ride. Because, man, it's so funny. Americans want to go on all these exotic trips to Africa, Iceland. It's like, hey, have you actually ridden uh, back country of Oregon? There's places where you won't see another human for the whole day of riding, man. Where do you, you don't need to go anywhere it take a lifetime just to to see all of what America has to offer. So show them where they can ride. And then the last one is a a really deliberate effort that we make throughout that whole weekend on these signature rides that we do um, throughout the year that we do. The other one being the conserve the ride is that. It still feels very lucid, just like a small, intimate gathering of riders. But the way that we set it up as far as orientation, getting signed in, doing the dinners, and then getting the groups together, we force adult males to become friends and talk. And what that does is, we then get emails three months later and, find, and you hear these great stories of, hey, I finally got to go ride uh, Backcountry Alaska. I finally went to go ride Baja because of your event, because I got to meet Lou Allen, I now had a buddy who wanted to do this, because while I've been riding for 35 years, my buddies were like, what the fuck are you dragging me up over this mountain for? I ride a Harley. I don't want to have anything to do with this. We got like-minded riders to get to know each other, and they all had had dreams of going to do that Alaska trip or going to do that Baja trip, and that's the kind of whole motivation. And I've actually been in the motorcycle industry council meetings and have stood up and said, Okay, guys, stop celebrating yourselves because we've never even gotten back to 2008 model sales numbers, and I'm a tiny little company, and we try to do this promotion and motivation. Now a couple of you leaders and key decision makers need to actually take a risk instead of retiring in the next two or three years and actually make an investment into this industry and get people out riding their motorcycles. Here's a few ideas, and it lands flat.
0: <laughs> well that is a that was a very good answer to that question i know that you've got to get off now um you've got another meeting to go to but uh thank you very much for your time it's been incredibly insightful i think you answered all of those questions that uh, i had in a, a better way than i could have imagined so thank you very much um if anyone wants to find out about alt rider crash bars they can find you on all social medias i believe uh yes. including uh and your website which is just altrider.com is that right correct perfect yeah, yeah. and we've got
1: an eu channel for uh, however many your audience is over there in eu but we've got altrider.eu. thank you for being so polite uh, you must be lacking other speakers because you were so damn nice to me uh, <laughs> not and, at all uh, Let's do another call another time and uh, perhaps we'll talk about something some of these guys would be interested in instead of hearing about manufacturing.
0: (laughs) No, the whole point was I wanted to talk about manufacturing because I'm into it. No, that was awesome. Thank you very much, man. Absolute pleasure. Have a good day. Yes. Okay, cheers. Bye.